If you were here with us last week, you'll know that we began a new sermon series where we're going to work slowly over the next several weeks through chapter 40 of the prophet Isaiah. Pretty soon, by the time we are done with this, you open up your Bibles, it'll flop right open to page number 712. Uh, but in the meantime, you can look it up there or follow along on the words behind me. I'm going to reread verses 1 and 2 as a background, but then focus our attentions on verses 3 through 5 this morning. So again, Psalm 40 begins with the words, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I know certain lists exist in a lot of different industries. Many of us are probably aware that the airline industry has a no-fly list. Casinos have facial recognition software to make sure that anybody that's been identified as a cheat or a thief who is notified immediately upon entering their casino and if they come in, they are kicked out. Sure, we've heard the stories of rock bands that are no longer allowed to certain hotel chains. Disneyland has permanently banned certain people. Restaurants have signs that say, don't take checks from these people. There are some times when certain people act so atrociously at some moment in their life that an airline or a company says, we will never have business with that person again. They are banned for life. Now, I truly hope that nobody here this morning has any personal experience with that. But I also can imagine that all of us can kind of relate to somewhat similar circumstances where there's a, a bit of a brokenness, you've done something wrong, and now you're trying to figure out, can I reapproach this person, and how? So I think of the young student who's taking that bus ride home, knowing that the principal called mom and dad and told them exactly what happened on the playground, and now they know that as soon as they get off the bus, there's going to be some questions that they have to answer. So who's going to bring it up? And how much trouble are they going to be in? I think about that teenager or newly married person who's driving home and there's no way that you can hide the big dent in the dangling headlight and you know that there's going to be a difficult conversation because the damage is there, it's obvious. And so how do we fix this? And how do we fix the relationship with the person that's going to be upset? I think about all of those times where you got caught in a lie. You pushed it just a little bit too far with the joking or you got in an argument. 
and a relationship was damaged, but now you wonder, has it been permanently damaged? Or how do we start talking with this person once again? How do we move toward this broken spot into this word that I heard us use in the preparatory form, reconciliation, that where we can repair what has been damaged? Or is that even possible? Well, as each one of us projects ourselves into some kind of situation like that from the past, as much as we think about those circumstances with humans where we've broken relationship, how much more does that affect our relationship with God? You know, again, this morning we sang this song, Behold our God seated on the throne. Behold the King. Let's exalt his name together. And when we imagine God as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God above all gods, and then we realize that we have disobeyed him, how can we approach him once again? Or can we? Again, have we ruined our relationships with him so far that it's done? Last week, when we introduced this chapter of the Bible that we're going to be spending time in over the next several weeks, Isaiah chapter 40, we talked about the great word of comfort that had come to the Israelites that were in exile. Their sin had finally been pardoned. Their time of warfare and conflict was coming to an end. But if that is true, how do you go back? If God had disciplined them through this exile, if they had proven themselves so unworthy of living in the promised land, how does that relationship get reconciled? Is that even possible? And we have to recognize that's not an easy thing. To imagine that it is possible. First of all, just think about all of the practical things involved in that. I've been just using this term exile, but let me explain a little bit what exile meant. Back then, and particularly the Babylonian Empire, the way that they treated smaller nations that rebelled against them, that didn't give them all of the taxes that they wanted to collect, is they would engage in war. And once they defeated these smaller nations, anyone who was alive after that battle was taken out of their homeland and then moved hundreds if not thousands of miles away and distributed around the kingdom. And the whole idea is this is a great way to destroy the national identity of anyone that dared to oppose them and to ensure that they can't reassemble, regather together and fight once again. And it was extremely effective. Just think about it. It doesn't take long before you stop speaking your native tongue and have to learn a whole new language and start engaging in that so you can trade with your new neighbors and participate in society. It doesn't take very long until your children grow older and when they have to marry someone, they marry someone from around this new home that you live in. And so their identity, their bloodlines start to get mixed and interchanged. Doesn't take very long at all before what is home is no longer where you grew up back there, but it is where you are now. 
And so any kind of connection, any kind of national identity is destroyed. In fact, it was such an effective tool of destroying nations that to this point historically, no nation had ever survived or recongregated after being exiled. Furthermore, just think about the logistics of trying to come back from exile. If you're going to leave the nation, your only option is you have to have the greater emperor grant you permission to go back to your homeland. If they moved you, you're not moving back unless they tell you it's okay. A Herculean idea, an impossible idea. But then, assuming you do get permission, now you've got to move all of your possessions, all of your animals, your, your belongings, hundreds of miles back to your homeland. And having done that, what's waiting for you once you get there? There's no home. There's no temple. That's been destroyed and the stones of it have been distributed and scattered all over the place. The city that was once there has no wall around it because that too was knocked down. So if you get back, you've got nothing waiting for you except more work of rebuilding and reestablishing. And so from a very practical level, this was an impossible idea of returning. But what is more is not just the practical, but the spiritual obstacles. Especially without a temple to exercise their sacrifices, how do you say sorry to a holy God? If their identity as a nation was rooted in being the descendants of Abraham and recipients of the covenant, how do you start again with a God that you have so openly and rebelliously stood against and say, can we start over? But again, into those questions and into that situation, Isaiah 40 has an incredible word of comfort. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Yes, there were a whole lot of obstacles to this idea. The unbelievable idea that these people now in exile would be able to return to the Lord. And yet the word of comfort is that they needed to be ready because God is coming. And what is more, what looked like all these impossible obstacles will be removed. Literally, the text is playing off the whole idea that the journey into Jerusalem was always a mountainous and difficult journey. There was a lot of mountains and, and a, it was a hard road to travel. And if anybody's ever done any hiking or bike riding, it's always difficult when you look ahead on that long journey and you know as much effort as it takes to get up that hill, I'm going to have to go up it just to go down and start all over again on the next hill. And those ups and downs are very difficult and the rough road can be so hard. But the promise of this text is that those high and low points are going to be leveled out flat. The crooked and rough road is going to be a plain. It's not going to be a journey of twists and turns and ups and downs. It's going to be a flat, straight highway. 
It will be easy. But again, how? How can the people come back to God? And when you dig into this text, that actually becomes a kind of difficult question to answer. Because you bounce back and forth, it seems, between responsibility in doing the work. When you look at the commands of this passage, you have the mandates that are given here to the people. The first mandate is that word prepare. Well, what does it mean to prepare? Does it mean, well, just get ready. Have your spirits kind of anticipate the fact that something incredible is about to happen. Certainly that's an option. Or does it mean more? Does it mean get to work? You've got some things that you need to do. And so in order for this to happen, you've got to be involved in the work of helping the impossible takes place. Similarly, the people are called, mandated, to make straight a highway. How are you going to be able to move mountains and to fill valleys? What can they possibly do to make straight a highway for God? And so the question of this text is, in this return, who's responsible for doing the work? Now, on the one hand, it seems pretty obvious it's God that has to do this work. Just as it would be impossible for the Israelites to move mountains, they could do nothing to repair their relationship with the Lord. They had been the ones to violate the covenant, and so in order for reconciliation to take place, God would be, have to be the one to move first. God would have to act to clear these impossible hurdles to a return. God would have to be the one that did all of the work in welcoming the people back. And some commentators support this idea. One saying, the emphasis is surely on God and not on the work of the exiles. Since it was Israel who had violated the covenant, for the relationship to be restored, God would have to be the one in order to welcome the people back. And he would. As we watch in history, as impossible as it seemed, with all of the things that would have to happen in order for the people to be able to return to the nation of Israel and to reestablish themselves there, God does it. And as hard, as impossible as it is to think that these people who had so greatly offended and disregarded the word of the Lord could be welcomed back into relationship with him, he allows for that to take place. And unlike the exodus from Egypt, it wasn't going to take 10 plagues and 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. As we will see in the coming messages, the impossible would happen and God deserves the credit. But let's go back to that question. Who's called to do the work? Yes, God would have to move in miraculous ways, but the commands are not to God, saying, I am preparing, and I will make straight. No, it tells the people they must prepare. So how are they to prepare and make straight? What could they do? What does it mean to prepare? An appropriate question that we have to ask ourselves this morning as we are invited to prepare to come to communion next week. 
Well, as you wrestle with this question of what that means, finding an answer helps as we look to a fulfillment of this passage many, many years later. See, when we look to the New Testament, all four of the Gospels quote this text, and they connect them to the person and the work of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist did the work of calling and inviting people to prepare themselves for the coming of Christ, think, what was his fundamental charge, his fundamental message to the people? Well, as quoted in Matthew 3, verse 1, he told them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As people were called to prepare for the bigger, better fulfillment of what this text was meaning and pointing to in the coming of the work and person of Christ, the, John told the people, confess your sins, turn your away from them, acknowledge them, and be ready then in setting your sins aside for God to do a whole new work in your life. And that's what the people that heard John's message did. They confessed their sins, they were baptized, and those that confessed and were baptized were better ready to have the work of Christ come and be done in their life. But that's where we flip-flop a little bit again when we ask about the work and who is doing it. Because the whole point of preparing for the coming of Christ was to recognize the work that he had come to do. And that work was to do exactly this, to fulfill the text that says, I am making a way back to God possible. As incredible, as wonderful as it was for the ancient Israelites to be able to leave the land of exile, return to their homeland, rebuild houses, the palace and a temple and a city wall. In the end, none of it was good enough to restore and permanently connect them back to God. But their day was coming when all of their Old Testament sacrifices would be put to an end in the one sacrifice of the person of Jesus Christ. When he went to the cross, he bore the wrath of God against all of humanity's sins. And as he shed his blood and gave his life, he made the road back to God possible. He bore our sins. He was bruised, as Isaiah says in another text, for our iniquities. And by doing that, and then rising from the grave, he proved himself victorious over death and all of the consequences of sin. And he says, when you look to me in faith, you can come back to a God who is willing to pardon you for your sins and go back home. And that is why I think this passage again has a lot of good news to say to us today. Maybe your mind's been wandering for the last little bit and as I start to move toward wrapping this up, if you hear nothing else, hear this incredible good news. All of us who are here this morning are people who have broken our relationship with God. We have sinned over and over again. There is no denying it. And every time we come into his presence, we come as sheepish, sheepish, humble sinners that say, have to say, if we are honest, I don't belong in your presence, O Lord. 
I have done nothing but violate your commandments, and you should have nothing to do with me. Our relationship is broken, and I can't fix it. But then, as we ask the question, how do we go back? How do we fix it, or can we fix it? The first call is the call of this text, and it's the call of the one who is getting ready for communion. Prepare. If we're going to connect with our God, we have to be people that, and that want to be people that walk with him. We have to be ready to receive him. And the way that we make, it able, make ourselves ready to receive Christ is by being honest about our sin. To not hide to not lie, to not try to cover up what we've be done wrong, but to admit we've made a mistake. We need to examine our lives and be honest in our confessions that we know that we have done wrong. We know that we have done things that are direct contradiction to God's commandments, and by doing so we've hurt ourselves, we've hurt other people, and we've destroyed our relationship with God. Because of that, in being honest, we have to confess. Not only confess, but repent. To stop. To start walking a new direction. But that's not enough. There's nothing we could do that would be enough. But the good news is of this text and the good news of this gospel is that there is a path back to God that he has prepared for us. Despite the things that we have done, God wants to welcome us back into a proper relationship with him. And that's not a hard road to walk. You don't have to crawl on your knees and beat yourself bloody to prove how sorry you are for your sins. Salvation is not a, a gift or, or a prize available only to those with enough money to purchase it. You don't have to climb mountains or cross rivers. All you have to do is ask God to forgive you in Jesus Christ. To accept his sacrifice of grace and receive his pardon for all your sins. And when you've done that, you're back. So for you. For you who feel ashamed of the things that you have done. You who don't think that there is any way that God could accept you, that he could forgive you once again. You who want a relationship with God but fear his judgment. There are more grains of sand yet of God's mercy in his container. And he's ready to pour them out on you. What do you have to do? Confess, repent, and then trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the wonderful news is that God has made that road level, easy, and he says, come back to me, and I will welcome you, despite your sin. Celebration of that good God, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we can do nothing but thank you. Thank you for the incredible truth that though we have sinned and broken relationship with you, and though there is nothing we could do to, to fix or repair that brokenness, you have done the work. Lord, especially this week as we anticipate celebration of the sacrament that reminds us of that incredible work, 
I pray that we would prepare ourselves, that we would allow for you to return to us by admitting and confessing our sins to you and turning our backs from them. Lord, that, even that work is a work you must do in and through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. But fundamentally, in the end, we just thank you for that amazing grace, that sweet sound that says we can be reconciled, we can be forgiven, that our relationship is not forever destroyed, but when we turn to you in faith, you welcome us back. What an incredible gift. May we know that. May we celebrate it. And may we live in repentance as your beloved children. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.